Welcome to the Geriatric Journal Club, featuring practical discussions on the front line of post-acute and long-term care issues that you wrestle with every day. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. This podcast episode is sponsored by Avenir Pharmaceuticals. The content in this episode was not developed or endorsed by Avenir Pharmaceuticals. All right. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining um, FAMDA's um, Journal Club. Uh, we are very excited today to be talking to, with Dr. Hawk, and we're going to hit a couple of things. Um, we want to really do a, a, a discussion around our members and patients' wishes, um, the do not resuscitate order and touch upon pulse. And I think one of the things that um, really made me want to talk about this, I was looking through some stats, and as of 2021, given everything that we've gone through, 71% of Americans are still without an advanced directive. And I think it's really important for us to step back and have these conversations. And for that, there was no one um, greater than Dr. Leonard Hawk, who is an, a, not only a dynamic speaker, but a great leader, um, both nationally and within the state of Florida. And I am going to turn it over to him. Uh, I'm really excited, Dr. Hawk, that we have you today. Well, you're very kind. That puts incredible pressure on me uh, to live up to that introduction. You know, there's two headlines today that go right along with that, Diane. One is that you said about 70-some percent of adults don't have an advanced care plan, advanced directive, a living will, a code status. But do you know that 22 to 25 percent of healthcare workers that work in this field also don't have their own uh, wishes established either verbally or on paper? And as happened to me twice this morning in consults, the family tells me, the 80-year-old husband, the 79-year-old wife tell me, oh, they filled that stuff out a long time ago. It's all taken care of. Well, now's the time we need the answers. Do you know where it is? So a 45-year-old daughter says, I think it's in a file cabinet at home. So even completing those documents or those wishes don't always make them readily available. So talking to people you love about what your wishes are, are very important. So Shane's gonna help me advance the slides and you can see this is about readmission. So how does it affect what we're talking about today? We're gonna to talk about code status, DNR, how to have a conversation about choices with our residents, patients and their families, the people who love them. And then we'll talk about polls too. And I want interruptions anytime. Shane, next slide. So I don't have any disclaimers. I think this stuff is important. Next slide. So why do you even care about reducing readmissions to the, to the hospital and now to skilled care as well? And I was reading an article in AMDA the other day 
that even skilled facilities that send their patients out into the community after the patient leaves the skilled, if they go to the hospital, they can, the skilled care, if they go back to the hospital from the community setting, the skilled care can still be held responsible for that readmission. So when it comes to avoidable readmissions, what have we tried that doesn't work? Now, avoidable readmissions has been a penalty, you'll recall, for about 11 years now. Medicare, first of all, said CHF, uh, hips, knees, they did all this bundle payment. If you were readmitted, at first there'd be a 1.5% penalty on a few admissions, heart disease, uh, strokes, I think, uh, and the impact of reducing it, uh, readmissions. If we could reduce them, what's the personal impact, the facility impact, and the cost, and what works? Well, what works hasn't been tried, or at least it hasn't been tried enough. Shane, next slide. So why do we care? Keep going. Medicare penalties, I just mentioned. Next one. Scores, we get these scores based on mortalities, on readmissions, and long-term care, it's five-star. Hospitals get the, fam the patient family satisfaction scores, the HCAPs, and then they also get scores on their mortalities. Patients come to hospitals to die. They're readmitted to die, so the head of an oncology group told me not long ago. Shane? Organizational relationships. Big hospital systems are looking at skilled facilities and at custodial long-term care facilities. And those with low readmission scores are likely to have care management like them more. Those with high readmissions to the hospital are likely to go to the bottom of the referral list. Shane? Shane sounds better than next slide. So the stigma of readmissions, can't you optimize the patient's care? Don't you weigh the patients every day to make sure they haven't had that heart failure weight gain? Are you doing oximetries? What about their hemoglobin A1Cs? You're not taking very good care of them, the stigma might be, if they're readmitted to the hospital. Next slide. Next point. And least of all, all the personal suffering. So just yesterday in critical care, where I often do consults in palliative, I had a physician come to me and say, I think that I can correct their metabolic acidosis. It's high anion gap, high anion gap. I think it's lactic acidosis. I can believe I, I believe I can help. I know they have respiratory failure and metabolic encephalopathy, but I can correct their acid base disturbance. And so he backed me away in the goals of care conversation with the family so that he could do his clinical magic. And he did. He rescued that patient from the jaws of death and inserted them into the chamber of horrors. Now they're going to have a trach and a peg, maybe dialysis, but their anion gap metabolic acidosis has been corrected. So I guess it's a success. But that patient has to suffer with the escalation of care and the escalation of care that makes it difficult for them to place. Once you're on a trach and a ventilator with a peg and maybe dialysis, it is difficult to find those facilities. I think we know of one in Iowa. Shane, next. So what doesn't work? 
Well, what doesn't work is exactly what we've been doing for the last 11 years since the first penalties came out. I was lucky enough to be asked to serve on a steering committee and a task force in South Florida when I was down at Fort Lauderdale, Hollywood, West Palm. So we looked at optimizing care. Of course, if that COPD, pulmonary fibrosis patient doesn't have an acute exacerbation, then they won't have to come back to the hospital. If that heart failure patient is optimized by identification, categorization, intervention, and optimization, then they won't have to come back to the hospital. The fact is that after that patient is optimal with our improved care, and we do some incredibly good care in the long-term care environment, even if that patient is optimum, they're not optimum forever. The human condition is one of decline when they come into our space. So optimizing the patient works for a while to keep them from being readmitted, but it doesn't work forever. And it's that time when we need to intervene with our discussion, with our conversation. What doesn't work is doctor-to-doctor -doctor communication. Now, that is a good thing, just like optimizing their clinical situation is a good thing. But doctor-to-doctor -doctor communication, if you're a medical director in a nursing home and you're trying to call the emergency room physician to say, hey, I've got this lady coming over with a change of condition, she's short of breath, hypotensive tachycardic, see if you can get a busy emergency room doctor to answer the phone. Just on Friday of last week, I had the father of an emergency room uh, physician. The father, my patient in consultation was dying. I called the emergency room. I said, I need to talk to the physician. His father's dying. The physician came on the phone. I said, hi, I'm Dr. Hawk. I'm taking care of your father. He said, okay, do a good job. I'm busy in the emergency room. Click and hung up. This is the doctor's father and he didn't have time. So doctor-to-doctor -doctor communication, whether it's synchronous, that means in person over the phone or texting or, or communicating face-to-face, -face, or whether it's asynchronous through emails or perfect serve or other devices, is very, very difficult. And when we've done it, it has been good for the patient's care, but it has not reduced readmissions. And this is a reducing readmissions talk. Facility to facility having the unit nurse, the charge nurse at the nursing home on the skilled or custodial unit or CCRC or assisted living, calling the emergency room to say the patient is coming over. You know, emergency rooms now have 15 rooms, 35 rooms, 110 rooms. There are segments, uh, sections. It is very difficult to talk to the person that's going to make a difference. So we do this through the 3008, through Interact 4 now, God bless Joe Oslander and all the work he's done, but see if those communications either in person or by paper or e-transmission really do the job. They're available and it's good that we fill them out. It may be helpful in a continuum of care, but it has been shown not to reduce the readmission. So how about medication reconciliation? We know if the patient doesn't fill the prescription, doesn't take the prescription, doesn't take it correctly, if the prescription doesn't get in the non-emergency transportation to the nursing facility, we're guaranteed that it does, but it often doesn't. If it's not filled timely, 
medication reconciliation is absolutely important. And for our population, it's de-prescribing as much as prescribing. It has been shown to be effective in good care, but not reducing readmission. Shane? So the impact, if we can reduce readmissions, avoidable readmissions, we can reduce human suffering. We don't insert them into the chamber of horrors, the peg, the trach, the levofed, the black nose, the black toes and ears from no circulation when we're trying to save the core organs with vasopressors, reduces futile use of resources and staff. I'll come to that more. It improves staff retention. And this is one of the miracles of palliative care or the conversation that you can have at the end of this uh, discussion. Nurses in high stress situations, critical care, intensive care, uh, rehab units, LTACs where the stress, the acuity is high, they often will leave if they see no opportunity to rescue the patient from the disaster that hypermedicalization can cause for them. And there's tons of Medicare cost savings I wanna show you. Shane, next slide. So this is the palliative performance scale that all of us in palliative care know, and that you probably know too. All of us on this call today are at 100%. We're just as cute as we can be. We're at work, we can jump high, our jokes are funny. We don't take many medications. At 90%, maybe we have a little high blood pressure or diabetes type two that's not insulin dependent. We see the doctor a couple times a year, but we can still do everything for ourselves and our family. We still go to work, still self-care, but down at 80%, we're starting to change a little bit. We can't climb the stairs with a load of clothes in our hand. We can't park at the other side of the parking lot. At 70%, our family is starting to notice that we're changing. We need just a little bit of help remembering to pay the bills. Don't pay it twice, but do pay it once. We may need a little help with cooking, shopping, cleaning, but we still pretty much take care of ourselves. At 60% is when the loving family member, the neighbor, the church member starts to become the caregiver. Oh, you know, they just need a little help with this. They're still sharp as a tack. Oh yeah, I've been paying the bills for a while. At 50%, this person now needs a dedicated caregiver, not able to work. They're a little bit goofy, confused, they're forgetting. At 40% is where they come into our arena. At 40%, they've had a little trauma and they've been at the hospital or they've had a small stroke, a ischemic stroke from which they can recover, or they've had a procedure like a hip or a knee or a, or a pneumonectomy, a lung resection, and they come to us for skilled care and we benefit them. But you all who work in skilled care are well aware of the pre-hospice skilled failure. Those are the patients discharged from the hospital by the care managers, case managers, who are the discharge planners. And they come to us in skilled, and as soon as we assess them, we can see it's gonna be one, two, three days, and they're right back at the hospital. But at 40% is where we often get some of our custodial care patients. The daughter made a vow, mom, I'll never put you in a nursing home. And she never did until mother pooped on the love seat at home. And incontinence is a reason that frail elderly 
come to nursing facilities even after their family has vowed they never would. So 30% they're getting sick and they need to come to the hospital. At 20%, they're either in the hospital or they should be, or they're in hospice. At 10%, they're actively dying and zero, they're dead. So remember this performance scale, Shane. So here's how we die. This is drop like a rock. This is how I want to die. I want to be functioning up there on the left-hand side at 100 or 90% palliative performance. I'd still like to be energetic and active and somewhat funny. I've lost the cute part. I can still jump. So something will happen to me, like a car wreck, a plane crash, a pulmonary embolus, an intracerebral bleed, or a heart attack, and I'll drop like a rock. We do really, don't really need to have advanced care planning or conversations for this group because they're cruising along normal and then they're dead. Shane? But this is what we see, the geriatric pattern of decline that is gradual and predictable. Now, this is the kind of decline. Oh, people can have good days and bad days, good weeks and bad weeks, but this is how neurodegenerative diseases look. Parkinson's, dementia, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, and even cancer. Oh, they can have remissions and exacerbations uh, and, and recurrences of their cancer, but that cancer, either the chemotherapy, immunotherapy, or the cancer itself, and all of the perineoplastic syndrome that goes with that cancer, take these, these patients, these people down. Now, in this conversation, where we're talking to the patient and or the people who love them, they see it coming. This is the gradual this is the gradual and predictable decline. Oh yeah, we saw it coming. But look what's happened. Out at the end of time on this slide, it's almost straight down. And our physician colleagues often say, gosh, it's just like they went over a cliff. So it's gradual, it's slow until it's fast. And it is that fast stage that we often hear. But you don't understand, doc. Just two weeks ago, she was driving a car at Publix. Now, you've all been in the parking lot of that little old lady who's driving a car at Publix. So two weeks ago, she was driving. Now, she's in our skilled center, and she's got to go to the hospital because she's in that rapid declining slope from 30 to 20 to 10% to dying. So it is slow until it's fast. Shane, next slide. And this is difficult. This is the fighters and the bouncers. This would be exampled by congestive heart failure or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, where they have a sudden decline of heart failure. They get to the hospital. We rescue them. They get oxygen diuretics. Uh, they get a salt-free diet. Uh, we adjust their heart medicines and they get better. They fought back. They bounced back. We see it happen. And the families tell us, but look at every nadir, the low point, when it comes back to a zenith, the high point, it's never as high as it was before. So even though these people fight back and bounce back, they don't bounce as high as they used to. And you could see a statistician would quickly take the bad days out. The line would become uh, a straight curving down line and these people come to the end of their life. But when we talk to them or their families, they say, you don't understand. He's fought back five times. They're proud of six readmissions to the hospital because they're rescued and they get better. COPD, uh, pulmonary fibrosis, congestive heart failure would be examples. Shane, next slide. So Medicare total cost in 2020. 
Now we're going to put, a, I'm going to put a financial dollar amount on what we do to avoid readmissions. Shane, this is going to be animated. So in 2016, the total Medicare cost, this is not the total cost of all of health insurance or health costs, you know, private insurance, cash, Medicaid, ACOs. This is Medicare. And in 2016, Medicare A, Medicare A is hospitals, home health and hospices. Medicare B, that's us doctors, nurse practitioners, licensed social workers. Uh, C, that's the Medicare replacement program, United Health, the Blues, even Medicare shared saving programs like ACOs, that's Medicare C, and D, of course, is the drug program. Next. In 2020, the latest data available, it usually takes two years for Medicare to publish this. So the Journal Club, this comes from Medicare numbers. So in those four years, the Medicare spend was up to $830 billion for all of Medicare, A, B, C, and D, Shane. Total healthcare spend, total healthcare spend was $4.1 trillion. So when we hear about debt relief for college, uh, when we hear about, uh, about the national deficit, just look, the every year spend is $4.1 trillion, and that's all of healthcare, Shane. So this is the interesting part that you can relate to. It has been reported that 5% of Medicare recipients spend half of all the Medicare dollars. Now, what was the Medicare dollars? $830 billion. Now, other people refute this and say, well, that's ridiculous. It's, it can't be that only 5% of the Medicare beneficiaries or recipients spend half of all the Medicare dollars. And I've thought myself, that can't possibly be true. Where would 5% spend half of the Medicare dollars? Anybody want a couple of guesses? Where, where is the most expensive place to get care for our population, the Medicare population, mostly our population? Anybody want to go for a guess? Want me to keep talking fast? So it would be emergency rooms, the emergency departments. Yeah, Jag? Okay, go for it. Hospitals and emergency room, that's what I was going to say. Exactly right. So emergency rooms and critical care, a, a hospital room is thousands of dollars a day. An ICU room is tens to scores of thousand dollars a day. It wouldn't be surprising to have a $50,000 day in an intensive care unit with dialysis, Levofed, remdesivir, uh, a ventilator, uh, several consultants on the case, spending that Medicare B money. So it is so expensive. In fact, last week, I can remember when uh, Dr. Sandra Cepeda was a medical student of mine and we would place feeding tubes. Back then it was the old Salem sunk tube and Dobhoff tubes were just happening. We would go into the patient's room into the patient's room, put a little ice chip in their mouth, put the Dobhoff tube with a little xylocaine jelly on their nose because we were kind. We would put it at the back of their nose and when the ice melted and they would swallow, we would advance that tube. We would put a stethoscope over their tummy. We would have somebody inject with a Tumi syringe, that big 60 cc irrigation syringe. 
we would hear the bubbles over their stomach, we would know the position was great, and how much did that cost Medicare? We didn't charge to place a Dobhoff tube, it was just a bedside procedure. The medical students, the, the skilled nurses, the residents did it, we did it, so it cost the cost of a Dobhoff tube. Last week, I had a demented patient, I wouldn't have ordered it, but the attending did, a Dobhoff tube, the patient had to have a pre-anesthesia consult, went to anesthesia, probably to have a half a, a milligram of Versed. Interventional radiology had to place the tube under radiologic guidance. So it went from a Dobhoff cost to two procedures and two and the room, the, the renting the room, interventional radiology. So a Dobhoff went from five bucks for the tube maybe 85 bucks, to $3,000 to place it. So the most expensive place you can get care is in the hospital and in the emergency room. Uh, and 5%, so it's been refuted, but reported again. So 5% of the recipients spend 50% of the Medicare dollars. So it's also been reported that one half of the Medicare dollars that any one Medicare beneficiary will spend will be in the last six weeks of their life. So when, where do Medicare beneficiaries spend the last six weeks of their life? Well, lots of them, lots of them spend it in the hospital, in the hospital. So if they, in the last six weeks of their life, and that sort of supports the point that 5% of the Medicare beneficiaries spend half of the dollars, Shane? And now, a word from our sponsor. Your residents who have a neurologic condition or brain injury may not be crying because of their depression. It may be pseudo-bulbar effect. For resources related to screening for PBA, please visit pbainfo.org. And now, back to our podcast. So one half of $830 billion is $415 billion spent on 5%, Shane. So where is it spent? Yeah, Shane. And that we said, what part of the Medicare recipient's life, probably the last six weeks of their life, they're dying in the hospital. As I said earlier, uh, oncology medical director at a huge medical center told me that their oncologist actually admit patients to die. Well, they don't admit them to die and do nothing. Everybody has to have a blood test, oxygen, IVs. They get the hospital works if they come to the hospital, Shane. So what happens to the 5%? Well, of that 5%, of that 5%, 100% of them, will 100% of that 5% benefit from spending all that money, half of the Medicare dollars in the last six weeks of their life? Will they recover? Will they rehabilitate? Will they live? And you know the answer is no. So when we look at it, only one in five of that 5% can benefit by the ER, the hospital, the ICU. So 80% will have escalation of hospital care. They'll have a long length of stay. They'll have a difficult placement. They'll have a challenging, uncomfortable course, and they are very likely to have readmission after readmission, and they won't get better, Shane. So 
How do we know who these people are? How do we know who's not going to get better and who's going to be readmitted? So Dr. Fisher put this clear study, the caring criteria. This is people that come to the emergency room or it's people we send from skilled care <clears throat> or custodial care or a CCRC or an assisted living or, or even a rehab hospital. When we send them to the hospital, if we send them to the emergency room with stage four cancer, people can come to the hospital with stage four cancer if it's scheduled to have an intervention, a celiac block or some treatment. But if they come to the emergency room, they're likely to die. If they're admitted to the emergency room, and this was done several years ago, if they come to the emergency room or the hospital more than twice a year, they're very likely to die in the near future. Well, two times a year is nothing. I mean, two times a month is the norm now. And you think about it, just the rotating door of coming back and forth. And if they're a resident in a nursing home, either skilled, custodial, or assisted living, these people have already declined in the palliative performance score. So their ability to recover and to re rehabilitate their energy for life, their physiologic reserve has already been exhausted when they're in our space. We do not have the healthiest perform palliative performance scale, 90 and 100% people that we're caring for in our facilities. So when they get pneumonia, when they get COVID, when they fall and break a hip, when they have an unstageable wound, when they have a new stroke, they're not the strongest people to get better. And if you have a patient who's been discharged from the intensive care unit and they're back in the emergency room within 30 days, that patient is likely to die. Just being in the intensive care unit means they probably have multi-system failure. And here's an interesting one non-cancer patient in hospice that comes to the, even from a facility that comes to the emergency room. Now, more often, these are respiratory distress patients. Patients say, I never want to be intubated again. I want to go and live at Grace Gardens Nursing Facility. Don't ever put a tube down my throat again. And they say that until they're suffocating and have an acute exacerbation, and then they're right back in the emergency room. So caring, you can see the C-A-R-I-N-G and the G is for guidelines. Shane, next. So another one is in the intensive care unit and you're sending patients, when you say change of condition, altered mental status, send them out. So we try to use the S-bar and we try to use the interqual, uh, that's not interqual, excuse me, the interact criteria to keep them in our facilities, aging in place. We try to have the conversations, but there will be some that we send out. And if they go to the intensive care unit, then if it, you're a new admission to the ICU after you've been 10 days in the hospital, you're gonna die. If you're over 80 years old, many of our patients, residents with two or more system failures, and that can be cognitive or physical uh, system failures, then you're likely to die. If you've got stage four cancer in the ICU, not just out on the oncology floor having a procedure, you're going to die. If your status post-cardiac arrest, this is so interesting. If your status post-cardiac arrest, I ask our ICU nurses, so what percent of people in the ICU who have a cardiac arrest respond to code blue? And they will tell me most of them. And I say, really, but they die. Oh, but they did respond. They had ROSC, return of spontaneous circulation. Well, having a pulse and a blood pressure of 70 
is not a recovery and they'll go on to die. And if you've got an intracerebral bleed and you require a ventilator, you're going to die. So there are just some of the very obvious and quick, those are the people, the 50% spend, those 5% of the whole population that spend 50% of the dollars. Next slide. So Medicare math, 50% of 830 billion is $450 billion that are spent on people, 80% of those people that spend that 415 billion cannot get better. They enter the chamber of horrors, they're gonna get the trach, the dialysis, the peg, they're gonna get bed sores, they're gonna be difficult to place, their families going to say, but we've done everything while that person suffers over medicalization. So of that 415 billion, 80% of the patients will not recover, they won't rehabilitate, they won't get better, they won't live, only 20% will get better and that's for a while. So 80% of 415 billion, half of the total Medicare spend is $332 billion, $332 billion spent in 2020. And these patients were readmitted and readmitted and they suffered and they suffered and they didn't get better and they didn't recover and they didn't live. Shane? So what works, Shane? Ask the patient what they want. Next. This is what we could say. We're with you. We can say this in the hospital, in the emergency room. We can say it in the CCRC. We can say it in the church basement when we get to speak to the senior group about how to make your life choices. We can say it to our own family. We can say it in the rehab skilled facility or custodial. We can say it along just before bingo at uh, entertainment day at the nursing home or Margarita Monday. And this is what we can say. We're with you. We have the same goal. We want you to get better. Getting better would be wonderful. That's our goal. But if you don't get better, how would you want to live the rest of your life? Would you want to be in and out of the hospital getting weaker each time? or some safe, comfortable place to be with your family. That's what we say. Ask the patient what they want. And if the patient doesn't have the cognitive wherewithal, then you substitute a judgment. Talk to the people who love that patient, who make decisions in their behalf based on what they would want. I know your mother can't tell us now because of her Parkinson's, but if she could, then read this. We're with you, we want her to get better. That's our goal, we're all working. But you know, the human condition is fragile. If she doesn't get better, what would she want? Back and forth to the hospital, IVs, tubes all the time, or would she want to be someplace comfortable where you could hold her hand and she could be in a safe place? This is it, this is what works. Anybody have any thoughts about this? And we're gonna almost be done. Diane, you have any thoughts about this? Yeah, I, I wonder um, what happens though, let's say you have this family member and the, or the, the patient themselves, they're like, you know what? You're right, I understand. I wanna be a do not resuscitate. And now the family is worried because they feel that they're not gonna get any care. How do you have that conversation? So that is a great question to talk about. One of the goals today was DNR. So for 
as many times as I've talked, I've always said uh, DNR is about your last heartbeat, not your next heartbeat. There's only one. So let me go back a little bit. Bethany Medical Center in Kansas City in 1954, it doesn't even exist anymore, had cardiologists. They didn't have rhythm cardiologists or interventional cardiologists or cardiomyopathy cardiologists. They were just one little happy group of heart doctors, cardiologists. But that was in 1954 after World War II. So monitors were starting to happen in hospitals. Pacemakers were happening and defibrillators were happening. And at Bethany Medical Center in 1954 in Kansas City, Kansas, the cardiologist said, well, let's put all of our heart patients on one unit. It was the first cardiac critical care unit in the country and maybe the first ICU. And when patients turned blue, they called a code blue overhead and that's where the term came from. If those cardiologists then had said, the default position is, we're gonna allow you to die quietly and peacefully unless you ask us to perform a code blue. So they said, no, what we're gonna do is we're gonna perform a code blue on everybody until we say no. And that became the default cultural position today. Everybody gets the works unless they tell us no. So do not resuscitate sounded like we weren't doing something. And Myra Christopher and the Midwest Bioethics now called the Center for Progressive Bioethics. And I got to serve with Myra when I was in Kansas City said, do not resuscitate sounds like we're not doing something for somebody that we should do. So let's call it do not attempt resuscitation. And I think DNAR, do not attempt, re because do not resuscitate clear, gives the clear impression to the uninformed that your loved one will be resuscitated. And the fact is that on television with a handsome young doctor and the beautiful green-eyed nurse, that resuscitation happens about 87% of the time and they fall in love and have an affair outside the hospital or in the linen room 100% of the time. So the impression is that if you elect resuscitation, you will be resuscitated. Even in a healthy population, people are only resuscitated 15% of the time so that they return to their normal life. Oh, they may get return of spontaneous circulation, but end up vegetative or impaired or hypoxic from then on. So the benefit is only 15% of people who get a code blue, so, or attempts at resuscitation. Now, Myra and her group said, well, that doesn't sound good. Let's use the term A-N-D, allow natural death. Most of you who have been in the business for a while have heard that term, but people are moving away from that. We're allowing people to die when the public impression is we don't have to allow them to die. We could keep them alive and families want the miracle or death is a very bad word to put in any communication with the family. So we're back to DNR and that's sort of the history of it. I've always almost preached, as you hear me now, sorry, this is supposed to be educational and not sermon-like, but, but this stuff is important. So a DNR is a, only one time. It's about your very last heartbeat. We don't start resuscitating people when they still have 45 heartbeats left. 
It's at your last heartbeat and your last breath. It's not about your next heartbeat. About your next heartbeat, that's your living will. Do you want a feeding tube or not, artificial hydration or nutrition or not? Do you want a ventilator dialysis or not? That's the living will. While I'm living, this is what I want to happen or not want. But a DNR is only about your last heartbeat. So I'm a DNR and I'm still 100% on the palliative performance scale. So I know that when my heart stops for a car wreck, a plane crash, a pulmonary embolus, an arrhythmia, or being in the room with gorgeous people, when my heart stops, it will likely stay stopped even if they try to resuscitate. But I may still want to have treatments for some illness that occurs to me. However, as I was working on this, I was looking at the effect of people established as DNR, and Dr. Sandra Cepeda said it exactly right. DNR, the impression to the medical community is that they're a second-rate patient, that they don't, they've already decided they don't want all this stuff. Well, what they don't want is intubation and, and cardioversion attempts at the end of their life. They may still want IVs or feeding tubes or whatever. So I'm starting to change my impression of the DNR. And families tell me, I want my father to be a full code because I know it won't work, but they won't de-escalate his care because he's got the DNR bracelet on. Do you all have thoughts about that? I'm, I'm sort of changing. I, I'm thinking now they've got a point. If it's our culture in healthcare to diminish the care of someone because they made a wise choice, then maybe they shouldn't make that choice. Thoughts about that? I think we have um, Dan Kaplan. I think you're off mute. You want to say something? Is it Bob or Ben or which Dr. Kaplan? I have a couple of Kaplans. Oh, great. <laughs> Kaplan guys are great. Well, until until um, one of them, I would just say that it worries me because I think that um, it feels like we're not having the right type of conversation, um, that there needs to be more in that serious illness conversation. And I do thank you um, to Dr. Zorwitz and um, Michelle Mochia. I don't know if I said your name right. They put in some... Um, different guys to have those conversations. I'm wondering how, what you think about that and the, the fact that we have codes, like there is reimbursement for advanced care planning. There's all these conversations, yet we're still not um, conversational tools, yet we're still not seeing it executed. So hopefully I executed and I'm getting better uh, every time I do it because I'm not great yet. So the first time you have an advanced care planning meeting and just say, it's Medicare requires 30 minutes, but if you do one minute more than half, you get full credit. So document 16 or more minutes were spent in advanced care planning, discussing diagnosis, condition, change, prognosis, and options of care. So that's what you say when you bill. So the first time is 99497. The second time is 99498. Tell your office manager those are the codes and then do it. And almost any conversation includes advanced care planning. Now, how I have that conversation with the patient and family is I say, you know, I'm not so concerned about you at this minute, if I'm not, if they're not palliative performance scale 10, actively dying. 
but I do want to know your wishes. You know, this is one time the doctor takes orders from you instead of giving you orders. If sometime in the future you got very, very weak, so weak that your breathing slowed down and your heart slowed down, when you took your very last breath, would you want us to call an emergency, rush into your room and pound your chest, shock your heart, put a tube into your lungs and plug you into a machine? Or would you want, with all that you've been through, would you want that very last breath when you ran out of the energy to take another one, would you want that to be a peaceful and quiet moment? Daughters will say, dad, full code. Because I love him so much, I want him to have everything. But dad, the patient will say, when that point comes, I want to have a peaceful moment. I've been bothered enough by the medical system. So that's how I approach it. If they want to know more, I do talk about what the percentages of success, the benefits and burdens of attempting, attempting resuscitation. Can I go on? You want to, uh, this is perfect. DNR is what we were talking about. So I think we've at least opened the ideas to thinking about that. And we can talk about it more. Shane, next one. Exactly. So Dr. Zorowitz is, I hope, agreeing with me. 99497 is the first 30 minutes or greater than half of that. And 99498 is the second 30 minutes. Actually, those two can hook together if you're doing 46 minutes. Okay, so that last little quote that I gave, oh my God, you just became a palliative specialist. Shane, can you go back a slide? So here's this little quote, make up your own. This is just a general guideline to the patient, resident, or the people who love them. We're with you. We want you to get better. And don't we? I mean, of course we want them to get better. And we do what we can to help them get better. And if they got better, it'd be wonderful. So this isn't phony baloney. This is what we really believe in our hearts and our clinical expertise. We want them to get better. That's our goal in rehab and custodial care. But if, if life happens and you don't get better, how do you want to live the rest of your life? Now, this is kind of important and I just stuck it in there. We don't talk. We don't say words like terminal, end of life care, dying, because when you say negative words, the conversation stops. Even if they look you square in the eye and go into yes, 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 they're not thinking anymore if you say dying, end of life, terminal care. So end of life care and rest of life care is exactly the same length of time. So what language is gonna keep them engaged in the conversation so they can make a quality decision. What kind of care do you want for the rest of your life? Do you want it in a comfortable place or else? Yeah, Carrie. You're on mute or something? Yeah, now oh, I'm on. Okay. Um, I, your, your information is entirely spot on in that what I find in having many, uh, end of life, palliative care, whatever terminology works, discussions with families is one, they're just scared. They're, they're, they are sure that DNR, as you said, means do not treat. And when we, I always start the discussion by saying, 
you know, if we're going to talk about your DNR and first and foremost, no matter what you've been told before, do not resuscitate doesn't mean do not treat. It simply means, as you pointed out, that one point where if I walk into the room and you're halfway to heaven, you know, what I should do. Also, that it's a piece of paper. And if at any point in time, you know, you say, no, I don't ever want to go to the hospital. I don't want to be resuscitated. And you're comfortable at that moment. I said, if you or someone else at the end of time uh, says, you know what, Let, let's just send them to the hospital or let's just be aggressive. And I find that when a person knows that I'm making a decision now, but if I want to change it, I can change it that there's an, an element of uh, comfort and peace in that decision-making. Good, great points, great points. Okay, so you see my little paragraph in quotes here. So I have been told, oh, Dr. Hawk, you just say it so well. You're really the only one yeah. that can talk to patients and families that way. Look what it, this is. We want you to get better, we're with yeah. you. But if life happens and you don't get better, we want to take an order from you. And that order is, how do you want us to treat you for the rest of your life? You give us instructions about the care you want and the care you don't want. Okay, so anybody can do that. The discharge planner can do that. The admission nurse to the nursing facility can do that. Physical therapy can do that. The tray server can do that. This... This is not a sacred, secret conversation. How do you want, if you can't get better, what do you want? This right. is that simple. Next slide. Thank so, you. oh my God, you're not a doctor. You're not a palliative specialist. You don't have three board certifications. You just talk to a person and their family about what they want for care for the rest of their life. You've become a palliative specialist and you didn't even know it, and you helped somebody. This conversation used to be called breaking bad news, but we got rid of that language because breaking sounds like a bone and that's not good. And bad news is bad news, who wants to hear it? So we don't say it. Then it, it matured to the difficult conversation. Well, anytime that you're planning for a difficult conversation, it's going to be difficult. So that language is gone. So now it's the goals of care. It's not, what are the goals of care for the end of your life, for your terminal condition, for your dying state? What are the goals of care conversation? What do you want for the rest of your life? If you want ventilators during COVID, we got ventilators galore in storage. You can have two of them now if you want them, if we could hook up the tubing. You can have dialysis. You can have it all. Do you want that? Do you want seven readmissions to the hospital? What are your goals for the kind of care you would want for the rest of your life? That's part of the conversation. Carrie, did you have another thought or did I, can I go on? I think I'm almost at the end. Go on, okay. You were on mute, but I got the go on wave, Jane. So even if a few, remember that, what was it, 332 billion? So what if it's more? than 5% that spend 50% of the money? What if it's not that 80% that's never gonna get better no matter what happens? What if only part of them hear the conversation and respond with a quality decision that, yeah, we don't wanna go back. So 
here it is. Here's the cost effectiveness and the salvation from suffering and torment of over-medicalization. So 80% of that 50% spend one half of the Medicare, that's 332 billion and don't get better. Even if one third of those patients and families we talked to made a quality decision about the care they wanted or the care they didn't want for the rest of their lives, that would be $110 billion a year not spent in ERs and hospitals. Now it's not 110 billion is totally not spent because these people need to have hospice care, palliative care, nursing home care, assisted living. But that spend is so much less than ERs and ICUs. Do you think Medicare would be interested in this talk? That's why Medicare supports hospices, because even though a hospice can generate money, some are for-profit and do, it's so much less expensive. And I'm sure that the people over in Medicare who are looking at this think about humanity first and dollar second. What did I just say? Well, they think about dollars first and humanity second, but humanity is protected from the chamber of horrors if patients make, and their families, the people who love them, make quality decisions about the care they want for the rest of their life. Shane? So the dollars are right there. So tools, intensive care, I think I said this already. Shane, go on to the next one. So we can ask, one of the tools is to ask patients and families, how were you the last, well, we just don't know how much time mom has. Well, how was she last year or last month? They will start to reel. These are questions, not, this is the ask, 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 not tell, tell, tell. If we tell, 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 they'll go into denial. If we ask, they'll listen. How was she last year and last month? How is she now? What do you think is happening here? If the next week with her decline, if the next week looked like the past week, what do you think could happen? You will see their shoulders drop and they say, oh my God, she could die. They'll tell us the prognosis. Are you seeing recovery and strengthening or decline? They'll tell us, this is a difficult time. How can I help? We didn't tell them anything. Their job is not to understand us. Our job is to understand them. Shane? So how can I help? Leonard Hawk, Hawk Top. So I did not talk in my last couple of minutes. Thank you all for your tolerance and patience. We did not talk about POLST, Physician Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatments in Florida. Many states, I think 19, either have POLST or MOLST, Medical Treatments, Life-Sustaining Orders, or something like it. It was started in Oregon, and there is the National POLST Association now. Florida has had a POLST bill presented now probably eight years ago and it was never voted down. It just did not meet the legal requirements for support in the Senate and the House in Florida. And it was represented and then a third time and it never made its way through procedure. In Florida, our legislature has committee meetings often, but they only are in session 
six weeks a year. And that means that they only get to look at 30, 40, 50, 60 bills, education, healthcare, tourism, sugar, and citrus are the big issues that come up to the legislature. And if we go in and say, we want a bill in Florida that has a cost to it because Pulse is a registry, it's not just a yellow form uh, stuck on the refrigerator, it is a internet registry of people and these people get to say what they want on their Pulse form that's entered into the e-registry so that full resuscitation attempts, no resuscitation attempts, artificial hydration. So there is a cost to Pulse and Pulse has never made it to a legislative vote yet. At FAMDA, we are the home of Pulse, but you can imagine with a short legislative session, as long as there are tourists, teachers and orange trees in Florida, it's hard to get the legislative attention. We actually need money to hire a lobbyist. So we're looking at grants and opportunities to do that. And with that, I just wanna thank you, Diane and all that. And Shane, thank you for hitting the advanced slide button. You did an incredible job with that. And all of the people who, who attended and probably are better experts at this in your everyday practice than I am. Diane, thank you so much. I'll turn it back. Thank you, thank you. And if anyone, I think we have time for maybe one other question, if anyone wants to take themselves off of mute. Otherwise, I'll say thank you, Dr. Hawk. You're always, it's always a joy to have, um, to sit and listen to you and learn from you. Um, I do wonder, in thinking about all the tools that we have that are now available to us, the way that the conversation has progressed from difficult conversations breaking bad news to, um, to serious illness, what do you think the future is? And maybe we could let Dr. Zorowitz, I think he had a quick comment, um, weigh in first. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll be very quick. Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I think this is a great talk. Um, in addition to saying that we hope you get better, you have to be willing to level with the patient and say that it's very likely that you're not going to get better that's the case. Uh, and that's part of informed consent. They, it, by saying that we hope that you get better, we're going to do everything to help you get better. They may translate that as, oh, I can get better, when in fact, they may not be able to get better. And while there's always uncertainty, we can reflect that in our conversation, but I think we have to be straightforward. And I think that's the point of either vital talk or the serious illness conversation, both of which are great evidence-based approaches to communication with seriously ill patients. Great comment. And I think Carrie has a hand up. Uh, yes, the one thing I think that in, in our arena in uh, long-term subacute care that I find is, is one of the largest stumbling blocks, kind of ironic since we do deal with end of life for the most part who come in, there's very few who leave. But I find the uh, lack of, uh, the lack of education and support of those people who are particularly supposed to be 
educating people on uh, within the facilities. Not that I don't feel well. Can I can I jump in? Absolutely. So, time is limited, and I think what you just said in the facility is what Dr. Sanders Cepeda was saying. What's happening in medical school and training? People who are supposed to be trained or knowledgeable in having this conversation. Mm -hmm. So I I love this conversation. It's really been my life. I even have this little hot talk consulting uh, that I would be happy to come to your system or or to your corporation or to your facility as a consultant and help with this. But I my great example is I gave this presentation to hospice nurses yeah. who are frontline admitting nurses and supposed to be able to have the, the breaking bad news, difficult discussion, end of life conversation, don't secure conversation. And when I started and I said, I think we can somehow improve the conversation. One of the nurses raised her hand and said, you know, I don't want to be rude before I even hear you talk, but I've been a hospice nurse 26 years and I know how to have this conversation. I'm probably better at it than you are. So I was taken by that, by her courage yeah. to say that at the beginning. So I said, okay, let's see. So by the third hour, this was one hour a week for six weeks, she said, I have to say, I have had this conversation for 26 years and I've done it wrong for 26 years, which yeah. goes back to the old adage, practice makes perfect. Practice makes permanent. It does permanent. not make perfect. We have to be lifelong learners. And, right. even, and even in hospice, yeah. those people, carry that should be, doctors sometimes don't use the language that keeps the patient and family engaged. And I know we're over time, but you make such a good point. Educating about words to use, words not to use, the yes. environment is incredibly important in allowing people to make quality decisions about the care they want for the rest of their life. I, absolutely. Thank you everyone Thank you. for joining us. Um, we will get the recording out. We will get you Dr. Hawk's slides and the links that were um, put into the chat. Thank you all, have a great day. Thank you, thanks for allowing me to be here. Thank you, Dr. Hawk. References for this podcast and links to the previous recordings can be found at paltc.org slash journal club. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast.